This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, in an age of scam calls, texts, emails, and hacking, Hank the Hacker helps us understand our cybersecurity in the cyber safety of the summer. Author Esper Bergman joins us here on the Shift to talk about pride, activism, and some of the language that we use and maybe don't understand uh, with LGBTQ and so much more. That's okay, he says. It just takes a little bit of learning and everyone's trying to figure it out. And are you okay with Dine and Dash? How about dead people coming back to life or being alive and then dying again? It's a very sad story. It's all on Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. System breach. What just happened? Someone hacked me. All right, Biscuit, uh, King Biscuit Boy right there uh, with Crowbar. Uh, so there is a connection. Um, if you know your old school rock from Toronto and, and Hamilton and Calgary, uh, you will know that um, that um, Hank Fordham um, is the son of uh, Kelly Fordham uh, from one of the writers and, and dudes with that band. So just so you know, um, all of those guys, like uh, the, this was Hank's life. <laughs> when he was young was uh, rock shows and all that stuff turns out when your dad was a rocker and he spent a lot of time backstage and at parties you turn into a nerd that's the thing hey hank <laughs> hey man happy to be back and and what a great what a great time with the uh, summer of of cyber safety isn't it though like this is so incredibly important um for us to talk about because we really do need to get into this everybody has had so many things thrown about you know ai and, um, you know, different phishing campaigns. I ran into it with my dad. You and I talked about that and um, uh, personally, and we'll share a little bit of that to, to an extent here. My dad was just doing nothing but searching through, um, searching through the Internet, trying to find a menu for a burger joint in a city that he was visiting. And he found an old website for that burger joint or whatever and the link to the menu and bloop. Up comes the message that you, um, you've been infected, call this phone number. My dad called me right away and said, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. And, um, and it was stopped. Everything was stopped. But it was really close. My dad knew. He even asked the person on the phone. He said, how do I know you're real? Which I actually, I believe that she said, but I'm Ida, I'm real, or something like that. <laughs> But it is so quick. It happens so quick. You are talking about professionals. And, and uh, Hank, we need to do something this summer to make sure everyone feels like they're aware of the kinds of scams that are out there. You, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I've had that exact same phone call from my dad where, uh, you know, he calls and, and he's, he's been hoodwinked into clicking on a link or, or sending some form of information. And, you know, with, with my dad and something I, I spoke with uh, Sutina police as well about was like the, the biggest kind of barrier you can put in place in these things or the biggest kind of safety you can have safety net is 
someone who like an active line of communication if you have um if you have that geek in your family or or really anyone they don't have to be a computer geek um it 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 puts you at an advantage to have someone that you can contact and ask about these things and take their word for it rather than you know jumping into something and and that helped my dad a lot with you know if he had some kind of an email making a request or um if he had uh you know, if he was trying to submit something online, he could have me help him with that. And uh, that way he wasn't kind of going down this, I, I guess, dark path, if you will, of where, you know, he goes on Google, searches for this menu, and then before you know it, it, it it's a fake Microsoft support website telling him to call in and let them connect to his computer or something, which you never want to do. You never want to let uh, these people connect to your phone or your computer or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's just it, right? Um, don't even like, I've seen that with Canada revenue, like the banks in Canada revenue, they have the worst messaging systems ever. They wonder why people get, get scammed is because they quite literally have the stupidest automated messaging. Hello. This is a call from Canada Revenue to connect to your agent press too. Like it's the worst. It's exactly what the scammers do. I'm pretty sure that that's who consulted on their communication system. But the cool well, part I, is, I would just before one second here, Hank, is that I want to finish that thought is that before they, the cool part is, is you can say, prove to me that you're with the CRA or your bank and they will say, Google my phone number. Um, and this is my extension. And then so they, they actually terminate the call with you. And if you actually Google the phone number, it will come up as, you know, Broil Bank, BMO, whatever customer service, right? It's the legitimate phone number that you're calling. You can even touch it on your screen, on your phone, and it will call the proper place. So, you know, there are ways you have to terminate everything you're doing and connect in a way that you're comfortable with. That was just the end of the thought. Go ahead, Hank. Oh, no, I you're right on the dot, right on the dot, because... Um, I, I was actually, I was taking an Uber recently and I was talking with him about how, um, he, well, he became a victim to a CRA hack and he had only just recently moved to Canada. And, and that's one of the biggest things you notice is, you know, regardless of these hackers sending out big swaths of emails and, and targeting a random demographic, um, it's really easy to target you know, for these guys, a demographic that doesn't understand how the CRA might contact their customers. And so it's important for people to know that you can do things like ask them to verify their identity, even over the phone. Um, and whether that be contacting you by email to schedule a phone appointment, and then at least you're getting uh, another email and then you have something that you can you can show your your open line of communication, like who's your contact, who's your connection. Um, and and then you have someone trusted involved that has kind of a third point of view on that. And now you, you can both together kind of troubleshoot this issue. And and I think that's somewhere that CRA can improve as well is making especially people that are new to Canada, um, making them aware of how, you know, how the CRA works, how, you know, the CRA will never contact you for your payment info. They'll never contact you asking for your password. Mm. Um, they'll never contact you. Like, 
demanding that you give them a credit card number or something um, to, to avoid any kind of legal repercussions. And, and these are important things to know for people that not only people that are new to Canada, but um, but younger people as well that haven't really interacted with the CRA before. Mm -hmm. Well, so, yeah, younger people is a good point. And beyond that, though, I would say it's also important to remember your bank will phone you or a salesperson from the bank or whatever. And they will say, hey, is this Hank Fordham? And they'll be, you'll be like, yes, it is. And they're like, okay, well, it's Joe calling from Joe's bank. Um, you know, we want to, we need payment from you. Okay, well, how much do I owe you? Is the next natural question, right? And then, um, and then they'll say, well, we in order to confirm that, we need to confirm it's you. And they will start to ask you information. And it is okay for you to say, no, thank you. I will call my local branch person on Monday. And because if they want money from you, they're going to work with you. And you just, and you have to say these words, Hank, you have to say, I do not feel safe in this phone call. This phone call feels suspicious to me because in theory, if it's legit, they're recording in any way. I want you to tell your manager that I, I'm happy to have a conversation when I can verify that you are who you are and do that because and it's okay just do it just do it there's no way that you're ever going to get in trouble for saying i need you to verify who you are before i authenticate my account when you called me and hit full pause on it and call your local branch on monday right um trust me even if they freeze your 50 bucks your your friends and your family will help you out it is safer to do that and just hit pause and don't feel bad hank don't feel bad when you say to the the person phoning say thank you no thank you you're more than welcome to uh, have someone call me that this the whole thing feels suspicious happy to chat with you when it doesn't feel suspicious do that you know shane i i couldn't have said it better myself because and that's one of the biggest things that we used to teach our our clients at, at my in my past work is because that's one of the best opportunities to squash an amygdala hijacking attempt is just to say no. And, you know, whether that be in a private environment or a corporate environment, just not only saying no, but knowing how to say no and when to say no in the conversation is, is extremely important. And so as soon as, as you have someone, like you said, making a request for any kind of information, that's the time to say no. And, you know, I couldn't have said it better myself. The way to say no is just politely, um, you know, I need you to verify your identity and then call your own branch on your own so that it's you calling the bank on, you know, on the weekday or, uh, or whenever your next availability is. And because despite whatever inconvenience that might cause, at, at least you're, you're at an advantage now. Not mm -hmm. not only again with your your personal banking stuff, but now you're you're even helping keep your company safe or keep your work environment safe because you know how to say no, you know when to say no, and you know how to say it professionally in a in a way that you know is. It, Dr. Daniel Goldman talked a lot about this with amygdala hijacking and and hackers research that a lot as well, but just saying no. Just that simple term or saying uh, will it, it'll make them stop and think and 
and it gives you an opportunity to get off and and think and give your time your brain time to think before you make a reaction based on you know an emotional an emotional response in technology we can talk about all kinds of nerdy things around you know spam filters and all that stuff and and maybe we will but uh, hank's been mentioned a couple times amygdala hijack they move the conversation so quickly and they actually use information that is perfectly okay information to trick you they move it so quickly so when it happened to my dad what they did was is they they basically said hey can you go to google and type in what is my ip address and if you do that, it's going to give you the, the, the number of your router on the internet. And that's normal information. It'll say publicly available or whatever. That's what happens. Now, there are ways with technology that you can hide that, you can move that, you can, there's ways you do that. But typically, your connection is publicly available. And that number is always there. It's kind of like your phone number being in the yellow page or the white pages back in the day. That's really all it is. But the hackers will get you all in a tizzy. You're an emotional swirl. And then all of a sudden they'll say, well, you see how that number, you see how that's public, you know, public IP. Well, that shouldn't be, that should say private. You've been exposed. We need to help you. And you're already emotional what's going on there. And so that's how they move it quickly, Hank. So talk about that part, how they use that. Well, the amygdala hijack is that quick moving emotional response, scaring your brain into getting fight or flight and, and, and racing into, Oh my God, what am I going to do? Cause that's a tactic. Well, that's, that's exactly it is they're, they're trying to, they're trying to create a sense of urgency or, you know, a sense of, a reward or, or like if you don't do something that that this will happen and uh, so in this case with you know having you go on Google and actively go and search you know what's my IP address and and then they kind of they get to play their their little game and say well that that shouldn't be exposed it shouldn't be public um, and and there's so many different versions of of this kind of like you know script if you will that that they use um but that's that's a great example of of a you know the perfect opportunity to say you know i just need to verify this take a moment to think and and even contact your connection you know i i, I realize i keep saying that but uh if if there were two things that i could just you know if i if i was told you know your family member is about to someone's about to try and hack them and you don't get to talk to them you just know this is happening i i would really the two things that i would tell them would be enable two-factor authentication really quick and don't click on any links mm. you know it, it, it as weird as that seems and, it, and it's odd to go on around the internet when we're we're so saturated with you know we're we're swarmed every day with links and but there's ways of trusting these links and and as you're communicating with that contact um if you you have that opportunity then these things will become much more obvious like an email from rbc saying that you have a low balance might you know that that'll be more obvious than uh, an email, you know, saying you have a low balance, you need to pay this fee before your your mm. account is closed. It, right. You'll start you, to recognize 
real your account is below your specified amount probably a normal email your account balance is low you need to click here before it bounces and there's a 200 hundred dollar fee um you know pay now um those are that would be some good examples and just so you know inside that amygdala hijack um notion it is everything that you think of in a panic you know when uh, your partner comes to you and they say we need to talk and that feeling that hits your belly that's the exact same feeling. Um, so what you know that feeling because it's happened to you. Your boss comes knock, knock on your desk. Hey, got a minute? We need to talk. Heart sinks, right? Partner comes up to you and says, hey, we need to talk. Oh, right? Those are the things. Your heartbeat goes up. You get a little sweaty. You get thirsty because you're stressed. That's a stressor, by the way. If you notice you're ever thirsty in a situation that's uncharacteristic, that's a stressor. Um, you get all clammy. You get the goosebumps. You get the physical you know, manifestation, the physiology kicks off. So those are all things. Now, Hank, I just wanted to put out, uh, get your thoughts on this very simple notion. If you are on the phone and somebody calls you or accesses your computer and it pops up in the chat and they're saying, hey, by the way, we want to save the day. Click here and click there and everything else. Is it reasonable to terminate the phone call and call your bank or whoever that you would call that you know, call a, a trusted person that you know? And is it okay if your computer's plugged in, just unplug it, uh, plugged into the wall, and if it's on and you're not comfortable, can you just turn it off and then seek help? Are, are those at least, they might not fix the problem if they're already in, but it could actually just end the situation right now as it is. In most cases, I'm hoping when I ask this question, that those people are chasing so many people in a day, like it's a factory, right? This is not just some guy sitting there doing it. It's a factory and they have bosses, and when they don't know what to do next, they go back to their boss and ask for help. So it's just like a call center. Turn it all off. They probably will move on before take a while before they get back to you because they have a long list of people they have to phone today. Is that a safe start? If you need to hit a panic button, what should you do? Oh, 100%. You know, bar going out in the back shed and grabbing the baseball bat. Don't do that. Don't beat up your computer. But um, absolutely, that's valid. And you're not going to damage your computer unplugging the power. And if you're worried because, you know, you, you have a, a laptop or a Mac and you're worried about holding the power button down and, or whatever, and, and or maybe you are worried about damaging your computer, unplug your modem. Go and unplug your modem and, uh, and that'll give you time to shut the computer off and plug it back in because that, you know, and, and if you're thinking that, that that isn't a realistic solution, that's the first step we take in uh, incident response for, you know, whether it be a small business all the way to a big, a big uh, corporate environment. If, if the compromise is bad enough, and it usually is in my experience, uh, then it does warrant shutting down, you know, a few workstations, which means shutting down computers, shutting down mobile phones. Um, this, you know, in a corporate environment, that would mean disconnecting like VPNs and whatever else. But, um, at home, you can absolutely copy those first few critical. And, and I say critical because it, it absolutely is, uh, steps in terms of like disconnect, turn off your computer and disconnecting or turning off your modem. And that could just be unplugging them both. Um, and, and that gives you time to, you know, call in your internet service provider, whether that be Shaw, Telus, whatever else, 
um, and also call that trusted contact because now you have someone that's like they can come in <laughs> or they can speak with you about it and say, oh, that's silly. You can you can do this and then you're safe or do this, do that. And, and if you don't have that trusted contact, you still have the ability to con uh, communicate with your internet service provider or whatever service provider it might be um, to make sure that that problem is stopped. Mm -hmm. Stopping pushing pause is number one. And if you feel uncomfortable in the situation, there is panic, there is hurry, there is pressure, there is give me the info, that is probably a good place to hit pause safe oh yeah yeah absolutely okay uh summer of cyber safety that's what we want to do here so if you have questions go to it's the shift.ca or shiftheads.ca link up and send the questions in by email okay uh that way they're easy for us to track we got hundreds and hundreds of texts a night send them in we will talk about them here with hank we will ask questions there is no stupid question just to be sure, okay? Because if it's on your mind, I promise you it's on somebody else's mind as well. So dig into that. What are you worried about? What are you seeing in your world that we can answer for you? Hank the Hacker is uh, here. Hank Fordham. Thanks, brother. Great to see you. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for listening, guys. This is the Shift Podcast. Brother Bear is here. I get so excited to talk to Bear Bergman, S. Bear Bergman. I call you Bear all the time, and I forget about your S. So, Spare Bergman, um, author and um, trans activist, Bear is here. And I don't like to uh, I don't like to include that as a title. That's a terrible title, Bear. But because um, it's not who you are, because I know Bear. I, and let me tell you, the one of my favorite things about you is you know you and I've chatted many times. We've had many chats off the air, and uh, you know when you introduce me to your kids and share your family with me. And like, that's so cool to me. Um, thank you for including me in that part of your life. You give me the confidence to ask questions that I probably wouldn't ask that I don't understand about, you know, trans and queer life and all these things. Um, I was a kid who grew up in the theater, so I'm quite comfortable in the conversation and yet at the same time, terrified to get it all wrong, which I think is a indicative of society today. And then there are people that have no problem getting it all wrong, um, wildly. So how are you? That was a lot. Great to see you. <laughs> it's good. <clears throat> it's good to see you too. Uh, I'm okay. Overall, you know, we're getting to the end of the school year, speaking of my children. So, you yeah. know, work has basically finished uh, in the public schools now. And it's just a series oh, of maybe it's just starting spirit mm -hmm. days. Well, yes, very possibly. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting time right now yeah. to be a person who works in 2S LGBTQ activism and education. So that's, uh, that's living pretty big for me right now. Yeah. Well, you're frustrated. Let's call it for what it is. I mean, your tone is, it's not you. I mean, you are one of the most kind, loving people uh, principled, but kind, loving people that I, that I've been able to meet here on the program, but you are frustrated now. I'm going to declare it because it, your tone is a little different today. I am frustrated. And the truth is I'm also afraid. Like yeah. that is, that is also real. It's not just feeling aggravated or frustrated or overwhelmed or, you know, being in a place where uh, there's a lot of work to do. There's been a lot of work to do. That's been 
my whole for decades, you know, I've been, I've been at it for over 30 years. Right. Mm. Um, I'm more afraid now than I ever have been. I'm more afraid now than I was in the eighties, late eighties and early nineties when I was an out teenager and mm. grownups were screaming at me, uh, you know, standing outside the state legislature building in Massachusetts after I was uh, testifying on, you know, for the creation of the first ever, uh, you know, safe schools project for LGBTQ youth. You know, those people mm. were frustrating and aggravating. This, this is different and we're mm. all feeling it. Well, I, I have a, a point of blame and, uh, and what I think Bear's talking about and correct me if you're, if I, if I don't represent this properly, Bear is it, social topics and principles are often a pendulum. They swing way too far one way and then they swing way too far the other way. It takes a lot of time, maybe generations for those pendulums to settle into what we would call common sense. Um, and there are people that are working against this cause. And I don't mean, um, and all, when I say cause, I don't mean trans. I don't mean any of that. I mean, humanity being welcome. That's it. That's what it is for me, right? I, this doesn't compute for me on so many levels because humanity being welcome a plus none of my flipping business, what somebody wants to do in their bedroom, but that's a whole other topic. Um, the, I, my name is Shane. I choose to be called Shane. And if somebody wants to be called something, that's great. If you change your name every week, that's confusing for people. At some point, you have to understand you're just not consistent anymore. You're not reliable. You keep changing and people can't follow it. I mean, these are just common sense conversations, but respectfully, people are going to call me Shane. They're not going to call me Sean or Steve or Bob, right? That, that's fundamentally all it boils down to. It's Pride Month as we have this conversation. And there are friends of mine that are gay that are married or whatever live their lives and and they have a real hard time with this month but yet at the same time they love this month right i mean i i try to avoid inviting you on the radio because i don't want you to be a checkbox in this month but all of these things are going on at once you can't walk through the mall right now without seeing some store major chain trying to sell me a rainbow t-shirt just because it's june and I don't think that that's not what this is about. This is so wrong. And it works so far against everything that people are trying to say, hey, by the way, I'm your neighbor, want to have a beer. That's really it. So I wanted to start it there because we have this story from Cologne to talk about and, and so much more. Where does that land with you? Uh, the rainbows in the mall or the story from Kelowna? Which, well, we'll get to Cologne in a okay. second. Rainbows in the I mall mean, first. The, the, uh, the overcapitalization, which seems to work against what people are out to do. You know, I listen. I am not opposed to a rainbow t-shirt. Uh, I am simultaneously critical of capitalism and all of the ways that it tries to, you know, sell us our values back at, you know, $25 each. And at the same time, I am old enough to remember when I got kicked out of stores because I wanted to try on a men's suit and the world didn't read me as a man and so they wouldn't help me. I'm old enough mm -hmm. to remember when wearing a gay pin, and back then it wasn't usually even the rainbow yet, it was a pink triangle, 
um, was enough to cause, uh, you know, storekeepers or people in restaurants to give me terrible service. I'm old enough to remember when the cops who showed up to do the crowd control at Pride wore two pairs of latex gloves in order to signify Mm. that they were afraid of catching a disease from the gay people. So there's a part of me that thinks, you know, rainbow capitalism has gone pretty far and I would love for those stores to pay more attention to, you know, their internal policies uh, mm-hmm. about the, you know, supporting their employees who are lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, two-spirit, and less time putting a rainbow on a pair of socks. Mm-hmm. And at this... And for, for the people who buy the socks or buy the t-shirt and they feel like now they've done their thing and that's all it takes. I mean, that that's where it takes me. That's not what it takes, man. Don't wear the t-shirt. If you're not going to live in the community or, or, or at least be active... And I, you don't have to be a protester, just so you know. Like, you just have to be active in the conversation. Don't just put on the t-shirt. It's That's like hashtag blessed. Right? I mean, yes and. Simultaneously, mm. I agree with you that I really would prefer people do more than wear a t-shirt. And mm. I also feel very aware that, especially right now, everyone who's out in public affirming their support of pride by their shirt or their pin or their hat or whatever they're wearing functions as a visible maybe place of safety or maybe a possibility model that you can be a heterosexual cisgender married mother of three who lives in swift current and your level of welcome and acceptance for LGBTQ people is at least enough that you are prepared to go to Giant Tiger wearing a rainbow mm-hmm. t-shirt. So it's not I nothing, love- right? First of all, I love Giant Tiger, oh, right? Let's too. just acknowledge how great 100%. that story is. Not, no, yeah. no, no critique yeah. of Giant Tiger is included in this, uh, in, in this statement. But I think... You know, I am always interested in people being willing and able to do more and any amount of visible support for LGBTQ2S people has value, especially right now. It has value Mm -hmm. to people who may be considering their identity and trying to figure out if they can be out in the context in which they live it has value to people who know themselves and are ready to come out but feel nervous that they won't be welcomed and celebrated in the way they should be so you know uh, it feels very much a question of we um we make the world we want while we live in the world we have and in Mm -hmm. the world we want it's actually everyone is safe and free to be able to live their truth. And in the world we have a little 11 year old queer kid in, I don't know, a, in a small town who sees someone wearing a rainbow accessory gets to have a little moment of feeling that recognition, that validation. And I, 
I want it for them. Do I want the gap to make $29.99 every time they sell a t-shirt with a rainbow design on it? No. But mm. at the same time, I'm glad for that kid. And it's not always a kid. Sometimes it's a whole grown-up who's, mm. you know, in the same place and they're trying to figure out how to live their truth. I want them to be able to see that. We often talk about this, like it's such a dramatic thing. I mean, I'm almost 50, I'm 48 this year. And so, and you and I are pretty close to the same age, right? I am also and, 48. Yeah, so, you know, I don't know, as I get to 48, I'm still discovering parts of myself, <laughs> right? No, in fact, it's probably safe to say I've learned more about myself in the last five years than I did in the first 43. And so people, it takes time, let's just call it out right now, it takes time for you to sort yourself out. Um, and so that's a thing. And nobody's expecting anyone to live a certain way. It's an invitation to um, just to, by the way, I'm finding my way. And we, we, we've talked about this briefly, but in the 80s, there was a thing called block parent. And you would put a sign in your window that said to kids that it's safe if you're in trouble, go here. And it's not even like that in that that's really what, you know, putting a flag in your window or, or wearing a t-shirt or a pin or whatever. Um, that's all it is. It's just, it's not promotion. People think that it's promotion. It's promotion of a thing. It's not promotion of a thing or a way of being or a lifestyle or taste. It's just a safe place for you to come to. And even for block parent, block parent was usually a safety issue. That's why you could come here if you're lost or whatever. We're not even talking about being lost or being in danger. We're just talking about it's safe to be here. And that's that part is so distinctly important for anybody who doesn't understand because maybe you haven't been around uh, people who, who, who have this conversation or whatever that, that, and I'll even give the grace of not being comfortable because you've just never been around it, but it's not about promotion. It's about that sign in the window that just says, yo, we cool. That's it. And it, and it doesn't have to be anything more than that. Am I wrong? No. In fact, I think that's a really good analogy. And you said it, you said it yourself. If you are lost or in danger, if you feel like you need to reach out to someone who has more resources, more experience, then you know where to go in a time where you might feel lost or confused or in danger. And I, the idea that promotion, and this is a concept that really frosts my pumpkin, right? Like, what there have always been queer and trans people there are always going to be queer and trans people no one has ever needed promotion in order to make that happen and in fact we have continued to exist and continued to be contributing people in the world whether the context was welcoming and celebratory or dangerous and terrifying right like mm -hmm. you know, jerks are jerks man that's just that simple that is true but it really makes me think about you know i i and i've talked about this before the so both my grandfather and my great uncle were left-handed mm. they're both dead they were both born in 19 I don't know, 18 and 1920, right? Mm. But they were left-handed. And in 1920, you could not go to school and write left-handed. 
it was considered incorrect. Everyone had to write with their right hand. And if you were left-handed and you tried to write with your, if you were left-handed and you tried to write with your left hand, they would hit it until you switched your pen. My grandfather told stories of having his hand tie his left hand tied to his desk so he could only write with his right hand. Hmm. And then in about the mid forties, it, people be, were able to understand that some people are just left-handed and that you can write with your left hand. And that is in fact fine. It's not a sign that you're, you know, possessed by the devil, right? Sinister, mm. the Latin word for left is sinister, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And suddenly the number of left-handed people shot up. Mm. It's not Although... that people weren't left-handed before 1945. That's it's right. That yeah. We were prepared to allow them to exist as left-handed people after 1945. Well, these these simple conversations though really translate bear. I mean, I think that it, like even I, like all the letters, man, like it's impossible to follow and then they change and then there's more letters. I think one of the I, I the smartest ways I think to have the conversation, I think, is the way the indigenous folks talk about two-spirit people. I think that most people, it's a simple notion, and most of us feel like there are pieces that we don't understand, know, or or another part of us that we are still yet to discover. Now, that could be, I like to sing, or it could be, I like to date people that are the same gender as mine, or, or whatever, or all of that, right? So I, I just think it's such a simpler notion to understand from that lens of two-spirit people. I realize that doesn't encompass everybody, but it is a simpler notion. Are we getting just too complicated? If, if the expectation is to understand and be understanding and be welcoming bear, it's hard. It's hard to understand. I had to look up just to be reminded recently what sis was with this Kelowna story of this kid that got yelled at. And just to make sure I'm like, do I really understand what this is first before I dig deep into this? So I Googled the definition of sis, CIS, by the way which is basically that your your identity as gender matches your birth sex. And that's really it, that's all it is. So most um, people would say, oh, they're normal. Yeah, but it's a way to identify that that's how they choose to identify. So it's so complicated to follow at times. And even for people who are allies, it's hard to follow. Are we getting too complicated? I mean, so I, you and I share a love of words. And, and we've talked about this before, so I think this will land for, for you particularly. But, you know, you talked about a pendulum swinging earlier. And I think what's happening right now in terms of language and labels and definitions and identity is that in modern times, up until very recently, people who are queer or trans only had medical or legal language to describe ourselves, right? All the words we had were handed to us by the establishment. And most of those words were designed to distinguish a normal or a regular, and I'm, I'm mm -hmm. doing the air quotes, you know, for, yep. for radio, which, but I am. People <laughs> who were different. And so now what we have are a lot of people who are saying, 
Okay, but I actually would like to have language for my own experience that makes me feel affirmed. The result of that has been a lot of new terminology, and I think some of it will probably stick, and some of it will probably fade away, but every time I hear it, all I can think is, this is someone who has reached a point where they have the sense of personal agency, the sense of personal power to say, I am, I'm gonna say what my identity is and I'm gonna say how I want people to refer to it. And I, I think that's actually good. I think it's good news. Yeah, and I mean it to your point of being flippant to understand that it doesn't have to be any more than we have, if you love love, then you love love, and then let's move on. I, I guess that's what it really boils down to. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for your honesty, and thank you for your heart, as always. Um, and uh, we're going to we're going to change how we do this, I think. Okay? We'll read book stuff sooner. Yeah, I, I thank you for having me on. I really appreciate these conversations. And I, I think that a lot of people... Uh, I think a lot of people need to hear it. I think there's not a lot of just like talking about the ways that we're trying to learn to see each other. Uh, and I'm here for it. This is the shift podcast. Are you, are you, are you okay? Okay. Okay. Are you okay with 877-399-9898? Your text messages are very welcome to comment on these stories that might make you ponder a little bit. Are you okay with Dine and Dash? Hmm. Demi. Mm. Never done it. Never would do it. Mm. Never. Know anybody who's done it? No, I hang around with good people. Right. Mm. I um. No, I don't know either. I, I don't. Yeah. I, I would feel like I would be too worried. I would just feel bad. Like I'd feel so bad. Hmm. Now this um particular Dine and Dash that we're talking about, uh, may maybe it doesn't surprise you, but it kind of surprises me. Um, where the allegation goes to China, the guy. Donald Trump had a very busy day on Tuesday. His first stop of the day was at a Miami courthouse where he was arraigned and fingerprinted after he got indicted again. 37 felony counts for storing dozens of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago resort. That's that picture of that bathroom filled with boxes. There was another picture of a stage with like paper on the floor. I mean, it was, it was ugly. I, this whole document thing is going to be ugly in the States because he's not the only one that's taken documents. That's for sure. Um, but at the same time, how he's had them all over the place concerning. So I don't know if he's the only one. Time will tell. Anyway, after all that was done, his next stop was in a little Havana where he made a little appearance at the iconic Versailles restaurant, and uh, which is a very important restaurant in the Cuban-American community down there. Uh, he's a very favorite kind of place for politicians to go, make friends with the locals, get their votes. So inside... Trump fans saying happy birthday to the former president who turned 77 on Wednesday. Then Trump announced to the restaurant, food for everyone. 
all my life, and I'm turning down millions. And I was in Iowa in a different location. We had 4,000 people. And I went to those people. I said, listen, I don't feel good about turning down money. Because my whole life, I've been greedy, greedy, greedy. I've grabbed all the money I could get. I'm so greedy. But now I want to be greedy for the United States. I want to grab all that money. I'm going to be greedy for the United States. And it's true. Now, uh, that was Vox News, by the way. Uh, it turned out that he wanted to offer all the food to the people. I've got food for you. Um, it's Bigley Plates. It's the best food ever. Tremendous. Uh, the ironic part of the story was that, according to reports, Trump and his team said food for everyone, and everyone ordered food and then left without paying. A source told the Miami New Times that Trump, uh, the Trump team was in and out in 10 minutes, leaving no time for anyone to eat anything, let alone place an order. Versailles spokesperson said, as far as I know, everyone who was there paid for their own meal. Now, to add insult to injury, sources noted that Trump didn't even eat any Cuban food at the restaurant when he was there. New York Times reported that he opted for some classic McDonald's on his flight back from Miami to New Jersey, which I have never understood. He always has like these big places with all the gold and he's got that big, beautiful airplane. And then it's, I would like some more soda pop <laughs> and a cheeseburger. Like, it's crazy. Anyway, Trump spokesperson said that insider for the former president did indeed offer to buy the food, but his supporters followed him outside when he left and did not play any, pay, place any orders. Mm. The spokesperson said that Trump's campaign team paid for to-go meals that they ordered. No details were given on what those to-go orders were. However, uh, politicians. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, it's kind of like politicians in an election, right? Yeah. They're like, all these promises, all the promises and then never follow through on anything Mm -hmm. ever. Right. Mm -hmm. You can have whatever you want. We'll build a new bridge. We'll call it the biggest bridge ever. And then there's, I like your Trump voice. It's very good. Thank you. I don't think it's very good. Um, It's just fun. (laughs) (laughs) I used to do a really good um, Trudeau voice, but I, I've lost that one. I gotta gotta try to find that one again. (laughs) Are you okay with dying? No. Okay, let me do it again. Are you okay with not dying? Yes. But then, but then dying. No. (laughs) Is it seriously something that's like? Do you think about it, Demi? Like, is it something that for you, in your mind, you're like? Today could be the last day. Live my best life or something. Dying? Like, yes, I'm a hypochondriac. So I usually, if I have anything remotely wrong with me, will think that I'm dying instantly. Like Mm. there was a while where my doctor told me to stop visiting him because there was nothing wrong with me. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you do the Dr. Google? Is that part of the problem? I used to. I stopped because I was, it was very unhealthy for me. Yeah, it always goes back to the same place. Yeah. You're like dying. cancer and death. Yeah, right? Everything you Google. Yeah. I'm surprised by that. Ryan's pretty hypochondriac too, actually. Really? You yeah. can't help it. You're born with it. You think so? I don't think so. Yeah. Jono, I think it just sticks there. Settle this. Hypochondriacs in your family or no? No. Everyone is as tough as nails. See? There you go. Yes. Jono. <sighs> I don't know. I just, I think it's me. But anyway, dying to me, 
I'm not afraid of dying. I'm in, most people aren't afraid of dying. This is going to get philosophical for a second. You ready for this? Mm. Most people aren't afraid of dying. They're afraid of not living. And I know that's weird, but it's really true because they will, they're afraid that they haven't been complete. And the irony of all of it is that if we don't want to die, the number one reason why people don't want to die is because they're like, I'm going to leave my kids behind, or I didn't get a chance to go on that dream trip, or, you know, I worked this job that I don't like my whole life and I didn't move on and mm -hmm. I wasn't nice to my partner or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. I didn't eat enough cheeseburgers. <laughs> And that's why people don't want to die or I didn't get a chance to clear my browsing history, like whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and, but then at the same time with the notion of that, we still don't make the, the real life decisions that we can make anytime and be like, I'm just going to live my best life, man. If I, I just, I'm going to walk the beaches and collect shells and, you know, just make enough money to survive. And I don't need a big place. Or if you do need a big place, but then you don't take the risk to, to try the business or chase the dream yet we still don't do those decisions right like you can see the paralysis that's in that and that's a big yeah. deal i think that's a really big deal right it is yeah i think people just don't think about death until they're somehow close to it and then they mm -hmm. realize but then they're too far along to have enjoyed most of their life anyway that's right they're never too far along i can tell you that um but so are you afraid of heights or anything like that no yeah. People who are afraid of heights, I think are a really great example of that mm -hmm. because people say, you know, I'm afraid of heights. And are you really afraid of heights? Cause you're actually afraid of gravity. Yeah. Or right? falling. But you're not even really afraid of falling. You're afraid of hitting the ground. Like yeah. that's the thing. We, we, we often put these mis like we, we don't talk about it the right way. And even yeah. the dying thing has nothing to do with actually dying. It has to do with the guilt of your incomplete with your kid that you don't talk to anymore or whatever. Right. Yeah. So or like it's what crazy. happens next for people? Yeah. And well, then there's that too. And I, this, I, there was one movie and it was like a horror movie or something where a guy was going into the cremation chamber and he was still alive in the box. And I found mm -hmm. that horrifying. And my mm -hmm. great, my grandma used to always say, you know, she wanted to be cremated because she didn't want to be buried in the cold ground. And so that was another one for me. I was like, both are good arguments. And this is an incredibly sad story. A 76-year-old woman in Ecuador was found breathing inside her coffin during her wake. She had been in there for a few days. They were doing the wake, having the thing. And then all of a sudden, hello, let me out, please. And she was alive. So she had suffered a part of possible stroke and cardiac arrest. She was already unconscious, went to the hospital, all of that. We talked about this last week. So we want to get this clip to reset the story for you. A woman who was declared dead at a hospital in Ecuador was found alive and knocking on her coffin at her own wake. I lifted up the coffin and her heart was pounding and her left hand was hitting the coffin. We called 911 to bring her here to the hospital. Emergency services arrived at the scene and took the 76-year-old to the hospital. According to the Ministry of Public Health, the woman was initially admitted for a possible stroke and cardiopulmonary arrest. A doctor declared the 76-year-old woman dead after she didn't respond to the resuscitation protocol. The Ministry of Public Health says an investigation is now underway. Okay, so that was the story from last week. Now, it has been updated. Um, it's been seven days. She was alive in the hospital, and she did finally die. So this original stroke um, couldn't recover without the treatment for the time. And of course, with strokes, that's one of those things, the faster the treatment, the better you do, right? 
So following her official death the second time, um, she was taken back to the funeral home ahead of her burial at the public cemetery, which raises more questions for me. In fact, uh, John, well, let's do the are you okay with intro again, because instead of like, are you okay with, I think that in this particular case, they should be saying, are you sure you got it right this time? So how do you go to, how do you go to that lady's funeral and bury her again? assuming that they got it right the second time. I don't, I feel like it would be so, that would be the most emotionally exhausting, what was it, like 10 days total Mm -hmm. of your life. Like imagine if that was your mother burying her twice. Mm -hmm. Like wouldn't that be terrible? But I don't know how you could do it the second time. You couldn't. I I couldn't. You couldn't. Like how could you do it? I don't know. Like you would have to see and check for yourself and then like bolt it up. Look, I, I leave the house and then I will come back to the house just to make sure I lock the door or close the garage. Mm-hmm. I will obsess about that and come back and be like, I know I closed the garage. I watched it go down, but something inside me says it's not down. So I'm going to turn around and I'll drive back. I would be going back there and I'd be like unscrewing the top and be like, okay, hello, mom, you did poke, poke, poke. Nope. Cold. And then you're like, just poking a dead body. <sighs> Don't poke dead bodies. I don't like this story. I know. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's so sad. Like, I was really rooting that, like, you know, after they found her alive, it would be like a happy story of like, oh, and then she lived for a while. Mm. No, no go. Yeah, and that's, yeah. uh, I just, I just can't, I I don't know how you could have the second funeral. I really don't. It does not make sense to me. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.